Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Great Data Minds War Wounds and Wins Machine Learning Stories from the Frontline. Today, I am surrounded by three of our favorite advisors Sharon Allpress, Kevin Hill, Anthony Rodez, and behind me and supporting us all are the women behind Great Data Minds, Alexis and Julie. Thank you both for helping us out here today. So, Anthony Rodez, uh, he's lead data scientist at Panasonic um, on the smart mobility Cirrus team. Um, they do data science on the connected vehicle technology. And uh, the team's mission is to reduce roadway congestion, carbon emissions, and roadway fatalities through data scientists, through uh, data science. What a great purpose there, huh? And also joining us is Sharon Allpress. She's part of DCP Ventures Group uh, and is focused on um, scouting the startup ecosystems for partners to co-develop transformational digital solutions across the IIoT uh, machine learning value change for the uh, natural gas midstream sector. Um, Sharon's got a master's in some of the early applications of computer vision machine learning for remote sensing use cases. This is brilliant. <laughs> I, it's like, I feel the sparks just flying. And then also joining us is Kevin Hill, uh, who received his PhD in cognitive neuroscience from uh, Univ University of California, Davis. He spent uh, a decade helping companies in all size, of all sizes um, to be more data-driven. Kevin's currently the owner of Human Powered Technology and helps health tech companies understand and optimize how people use digital therapeutics. Um, and, and, you know, and I would just want to share with everyone, welcome guys. I, I am so excited. And guys is a, is a generic term that I use because I'm a Chicagoan. Um, <laughs> welcome and thank you for joining us. Um, uh, something I just want to share with our audience. Uh, our focus this year is, is making sure that we do everything we can to help companies um, really start to double down and leveraging machine learning to uh, differentiate and optimize uh, their, the performance of their organizations, no matter what sector you're in. And uh, um, wherever we can help, uh, please feel free to reach out um, to any of us, uh, the three advisors on the phone or Julie or myself. All right, so let's get started. Um, I'm really excited about this discussion panel. So I'm gonna just fire out the first question and let's, uh, let's let the dialogue happen. So what are some of the key critical contributions to a path towards a win with machine learning? Um, Anthony, what, what, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, from a data science standpoint, um, one of the things that I've, I've realized is that um, it's really critical to have the data engineering help, um, you know, in, in being able to develop a data science environment, you really have to have a strong uh, data pipelines. Uh, you need to have that data engineering help to clean the data, uh, manage the data, and get it into the proper location so you can, you know, start that data science process, uh, machine learning process as well. And so um, I, I feel like, you know, one of the big critical things is, is really that, that data engineering side. Now, a lot of times, you know, if you're, if you're a data scientist without a data engineering team, you're going you're gonna to be playing both roles. You're going to be, uh, you know, cleaning the data, processing that data, as well as it getting it ready to, uh, you know, feed into your machine learning model. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. even with a data engineering team, there's still a lot to do as a data scientist. You're, you're still having to deal with uh, missing data. And, you know, how do you deal with that? Do you, you know, uh, remove that data? Do you impute that missing data? Uh, so there's still a lot of data processing and cleanup to do on the data science side, let alone uh, just getting the data landed in the proper location uh, uh -huh. for that development work. That's interesting. Yeah. But I spent years building up my data warehouse and I still have to do all this data engineering stuff. Sharon, I mean, what's the deal there? You know, well, I think data is a journey, right? It's never done. Um, and, and I like to look at it really from uh, to, to think about um, what the business value and the problem is you're trying to solve and take that in a really incremental, small approach, right? So instead mm -hmm. of trying to build out an entire data 
um, strategy and to kind of build up your entire data warehouse. Let's just look at that one small problem that you want to solve. Look at it from a business perspective and always keep that in mind as you're going through, you know, all of the execution details that Anthony talked about. Um, and then you can iterate really fast and learn and figure out, you know, are we on the right path? And you might then, you probably will, um, uncover additional data that you that would be helpful in, in developing the model that you can then go out and get, right? And so you just, you allow that process and that journey to inform um, what data or information you need to collect, you need to go and purchase, you know, you need to mine, you need to engineer, um, you know, from all different um, kind of sources for your model. That's interesting. It sounds like a lot of continuous um, um, decisioning happening. You know, do I pivot away from our current uh, hypothesis or do I persevere? Am I, am I on to something? Yeah. yeah. And, and you, you hit on the value thing. I love that. You know, it's like, let's find a big pile of money, but let's do it incrementally to get there. Because um, the, I read a lot of uh, uh, research um, um, publications, in particular from uh, McKinsey, lately, they've been publishing some great stuff. Um, and they talked about the fact that the there's an incredible amount of latent value waiting for us if, if we could leverage some um, machine learning capabilities uh, to optimize ourselves. But uh, there's also risks and cost risks slash consequences that can come along if we're not careful. Um, um, what will inflict the, the deepest wounds, Kevin? Um, yeah, uh, one thing I like to say is that uh, everyone wants to be data driven, but very few people want to be, let the data drive. Um, <laughs> and I think um, that's sort of the flip side of what Sharon was just outlining so well, that data science journey. And during that sort of iterative process, you end up coming up with a lot of information and critical business information that may uh, impact whole business units and that it may really sort of need to be integrated with overall corporate strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that can be a tough and painful discussion and process. Um, you, you really have to get down at, you know, quantifying um, some of these business values and sort of understanding, for example, what's the different costs and benefits associated with a true positive versus a false positive or a false negative. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those can be difficult decisions, especially if the people who have to make those judgments haven't been exposed to data science in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. um, any other kind of wounds or, or um, yeah, I mean, risks I, that we got to run into there? Yeah, I, I certainly think that th those are very similar to the the types of questions that a data ethicist might ask, right? Of what are the, um, the real trade-offs that we have to consider? What are the costs? Um, what are the bigger questions that we're about to hit us around the next corner? Mm -hmm. um, so often people think of the ethics of data science as sort of a pretty restricted subset of, of questions, but uh, I find that similar types of discussions end up happening a lot when we think about data science strategically. Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of rhetoric around ethics lately. Anthony, any of the other kind of concerns, things that we need to be watching out for? You know, I... Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, one, of the, one of the challenges we had uh, working on a, a large scale model is uh, the cost to develop the model. Um, <laughs> so we had billions of rows of data and one of the challenges was if we were to run that entire data set, we'd be spending thousands of dollars to run that, uh, run all that data through the model and develop that model. So there's a, there's a trade-off there, just like Kevin was saying, you know, do you, do you take um, and, and spend all that money and, and create the model based off all the data or do you take samples of the data? Um, and when you're doing that, you have to be careful about the, the bias that you um, could potentially put into your model, um, you know, when you, when you take these samples. So there's definitely a trade-off in understanding, uh, you know, the the cost benefit analysis there of how much data you're gonna you're gonna use to train your model, um, and also being aware of any type of bias that you can potentially put in uh, to your model as well. Um, and I think that gets kind of back to the ethics side of things um, in the connected vehicle space that I'm in. Um, you know, we're not necessarily concerned with that as much as we're anonymized vehicles uh, versus if you're in with a social media area, you're gonna have uh, potential for bias and other ethics, um, you know, issues there. 
Mm. So Sharon, in, in, in midstream processing, you guys are using machine learning to what, monitor the critical assets or what are the risks around that, some of that? Um, well, there's, I mean, there's a, a it, it depends how you look at it. Um, you know, one of the risks with machine learning is that it's not foolproof, mm. right? And you have, every model is going to um, error in, you know, either false positives or false negatives on that model. And then you need to think about what we think about a lot is, you know, what are the impacts to operations? If, if it, if it does predict incorrectly, you know, we, mm. And, and so we're always thinking about that um, from the midstream perspective, because uh, we are continuous operations. Um, you know, um, in the midstream, and so we're looking at predictive maintenance, condition-based maintenance of our assets. Um, you know, one of the things that we are, are also looking at is um, when we build these models, let's get them into the hands of the users. So the users, it, the amount of feedback and, and information that we get from the users to then, because then we say, okay, what decision are you, would you make from this predictive, you know, risk score that we're giving you or the likelihood that this particular asset will fail in the next week or two weeks. Mm-hmm. And at what, because there's a cost, there's a user cost to go out and, and, um, um, inspect the the asset, right? They Mm -hmm. have to drive there. There's a loss of some other work that they may be doing. And so one of the things that we really want to get the models, building the models is great. Having an accurate model is great, but then how are we going to use it? How is it going to drive the needle to really improve the operations? So we, you know, we have more uptime we have, you know, a higher reliability of, of all of our assets. Mm-hmm. So we're really thinking about it. And I go back to like what I talked about earlier is that we really think about it from a business perspective, like I do in particular, right? There's the building the model, but then how are we using it and how are we rolling it out you know, across the, the organization? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, again, when I you know, do research on, you know, some of the barriers to entry on being successful machine learning, I'm hearing that there's this, quote, great divide, the majority of these machine learning uh, solutions that have great promise don't get operationalized, don't get adopted. How do we overcome that? Sharon? (laughs) I am still on you. (laughs) (laughs) Or anyone. (laughs) Um, I mean, from my perspective, it's really thinking about it like a product. Right, the machine learning piece is just a, it's just a model. You know, you you, you kind of equate it to a, an equation or a mathematical equation, right? So you can write the equation. It's you know obviously more complex, but at the end of the day, what are you going to do with that? What decisions are you making? How is that affecting you know the organization? And um, you know, I would say you know if you want to dive into machine learning straight away as an organization, that's probably not the path you want to take. You know, first, you know, taking that journey and getting into into analytics, um, and just understanding your data, and and that's what we've done. And we've spent two or three years just doing some basic, you know, analytics, thresholding, alerts, alarming, and then and then we've taken action on those, and that's really informed us to say, okay, well, now as we start seeing how we can continuous um, continually move the needle into um, improve our process, can machine learning, so it's a hypothesis that we have, we don't know, can machine learning continue to close that gap over what mm-hmm. analytics can just provide us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any thoughts there, Kev? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, that that focus on the process, I think is so important. Um, one sort of concrete example there that I can add to that is that aspect of data cleaning um, that I think Anthony alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's one thing if your data scientist knows how to clean the data and what's good data and what's bad data and what data to throw into a model. Um, but when you think about the really the end-to-end machine learning lifecycle of operationalizing that, mm-hmm. um, you need now have an automated system that can clean that data and organize that data for you every single day, right? Uh, and that's a much bigger project all in of itself, Um 
And I find that a lot where uh, when I come to help companies, you know, they, they want to do machine learning today. Uh, sometimes that can work and sometimes it's a step back and says, okay, you know, great, but we need to really start centralizing your data, you know, all the classic sort of data warehouse discussions about a single source of truth and all that type of stuff as well. Uh, th there's a good side and bad side of that, right? One is that um, uh, that can be frustrating. You know, people want to get to the, the great, uh, interesting AI model today, and that's understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, but the good side of that is all of those investments that smart companies were making over the last decade in uh, understanding analytics, data warehousing, and all that uh, translates very well into the machine learning space as well. Yeah. So what do we do? How, how do we effectively monitor and alert when things are drifting, whether it's the, the data itself or the, or the outcomes of the model itself? I can take that one, um, uh, Mike. Um, so that, that's kind of the side of ML ops, machine learning operations. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's very similar to DevOps in some regard. Um, you're looking at how do you maintain your models over time, um, analyzing drift, uh, making sure that your model continues to provide that, that, that value and that output. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think uh, that's, that's a really important piece that I think people over, overlook sometimes. They're so focused on getting the model developed. They don't think about, okay, how do we put this into production, maintain it in production over time and continue to monitor that model? At what point do we need to uh, retrain that model and you know, put it back into production? Uh, so there's a lot of, there's other processes that need to be also thought about uh, to maintain the value of your model over time. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a whole another kind of area, you know, considered as ML ops. Mm -hmm. and, and is it fair to say, I don't know, I'm just going to throw this out. Um, I'm putting, I'm putting together these machine learning engines because I'm trying to affect be behavior, right? I'm trying to affect some kind of outcome uh, through a prediction of likelihood of something, right? At some point that behavior has been affected. So is there a difference between targeted drift and, and, and unexpected or undesired drift. And how do I account for that? You know, it, it, when I think about the life cycle of machine learning, um, it's yeah. not just, yeah. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think you're, you're, you're totally right. There is that difference that um, in these complex environments, as soon as you're affecting the environment, you expect the data that comes from that environment to change. Mm -hmm. um, it can be very hard to determine where your change is coming from though. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, you know, part of this human in the loop uh, aspect of data science and machine learning that's so important um, that you have uh, people who, um, either one person who both knows the data and sort of is a subject matter expert and can understand what these trends and, and changes mean. Um, or just really good operation, operationalized uh, processes <laughs> that allow, <laughs> yeah, I know, I've done it twice now. Um, but uh, these processes that allow those two groups to integrate really closely together. Um, mm -hmm. uh, if, if your data science team is just stuck uh, in an IT department and never talks to anyone outside of IT, uh, you're probably going to have a painful process there mm -hmm. um, because you're not getting the data experts uh, really close to the subject matter experts who will understand really what those trends, drifts, shifts, anomalies mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'm loving the, the focus that you guys are helping us understand around the, the whole, the human connection part of this thing, right? Um, so we talked about, let's get to the business value prop. Let's make sure we got the right entitlement to the right kind of data to solve the problem. Uh, and if not, is there a way that we can avoid bias by um, conditioning that data properly? Um, this is some complex stuff. So Sharon, does technology matter or not here? And what should I look out for? Oh, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk the whole hour about this. Um, I, you know, again, technology shouldn't lead your machine learning project or decisions. Mm -hmm. um, your goals should should lead what you choose to do with machine learning technology, right? There's the landscape today is so broad, right? So you could you could develop your model, you know, just using the the like a TensorFlow library, 
for example, and build your model and your DevOps pipeline all from scratch, right? And, and, and the beauty of that is that you own everything, right? You own the IP, you own the, like you own that whole end-to-end -end process. Then there's what I call like accelerators, right? Industry-specific accelerators where there's a, a model that's already been built. Like say, for example, you know, in the midstream industry around compressions, like say someone builds a model and then has five or six customers and have, has used all of that you know, compression machine data to train that model, then as, you know, as an organization, you, know, you can leverage a lot of learning and fine tuning of that model that's already been done before, right? So you don't have this long, like, this long journey of cleaning your data, um, well, you still have to clean it, but do the data engineering, figuring out which features you know, are, are, are the most impactful into the model. So it really helps you accelerate. But the thing there is that you don't own that, it, typically you don't own that model, right? So you can't then take it with you. Um, if it's, so so there's, a, there's a big gamut there. And then mm -hmm. there's the auto ML space, right? Which is really, really interesting. And I, I love the auto ML world because it's, I call it democratizing machine learning, right? Mm. And, and it's never going to replace the data scientists, um, but I think it brings that's what Kevin was talking about, the subject matter experts that understand the subject, understand the data. It gets them closer to being able to um, play with the data, the models, kind of get the output, um, see, kind of have the, have the machine auto select which would be the best model given the data that they're putting in and the parameters and what they're trying to solve for. And, and I kind of see that as kind of a leading path into like the data scientist, right? So then once, once you have that kind of set up um, and run, then I, you know, I would suggest you then hand that off to the data scientist just to validate you know, that everything is like, it, we're not breaking any rules or you know, kind of to mm -hmm. do anything that we shouldn't be doing, but it really helps you accelerate um, kind of and, and allows your subject matter experts to step into the world of, of a data scientist without having a PhD in data science. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's real, and then in between all of those, there's all these other different offerings of ways to do um, machine learning that's out there. And so, you know, I would say, you really have to think about, you know, what are your goals as an organization um, and, and maybe map out your roadmap to machine learning like over five years. Maybe our first year, we're going to use these, you know, out of the box um, pre-trained models. And we're just going to learn a bunch of stuff and start using it. And then over time, you know, as we start building up our core competency, we'll then start evolving into maybe, you know, auto ML or, you know, writing our own models with, you know, the, the, the root libraries. Um, so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of variability and there's a lot of options out there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I would just kind of, I would just say, don't leave with technology, lead with your business case and your roadmap of where you want to go with machine learning. And I'm seeing a lot of SaaS kind of offerings, um, you know, almost like full platform services capabilities. Anthony, in the connected vehicle space, have you had any experience using some SaaS models or you know, full platform models? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we look at, we, we have a different, uh, a huge uh, landscape of different tools that we can use. Uh, one of the things that uh, we usually start off with is, is small, with a small data set, uh, working, working locally on a you know, laptop using like a Jupyter notebook. Um, and that kind of gets us started so we can kind of understand the data, profile the data, do some data exploration. Uh, when we start getting into, um, you know, scaling the data and being able to put it into a production environment, uh, then we're looking to move into like an AWS environment using a SageMaker model, something like that um, mm -hmm. at a larger scale. So, um, you know, for us, it's, it's a matter of, uh, you know, using the open source tools. There's a lot, quite a few out there right now uh, to start off with. And then looking at what is your, what is your uh, environment look like? And a lot of times, you know, companies have, you know, a GCP, they have Azure or AWS is kind of their overall, um, you know, environment they're going to be using for these models. Mm -hmm. So then you'll, you'll, um, you know, move your, your data set into that environment, or if it's already there, you'll start developing your models into that, uh, that environment. 
There's so much technology out there, though. I mean, Kevin, how do you keep track of all this? How do you determine? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, this is a question that comes up almost every engagement that I do, right? Um, you know, how are we going to get this done? And um, what I found most effective is to focus on that last mile first, um, which mm. is really how are you going to, you know, give data to this system, whether you build it in-house, whether it's a cloud provider, whether it's a platform, um, and then how are you going to get the results out of that and actually have it impact some relevant business decision, right? I mean, it's it's got to do something in the real world. I can't just sort of stay inside that platform. Um, and, and thinking through that process, that's really what tells you how much you're going to have to change your own internal systems anyways, and how much you can sort of outsource or put that onto a platform. Um, and and every company... Every company's gonna have a different answer there, right? Because mm -hmm. they're gonna have different levels of sophistication of their data pipelines that they already have internally. Um, microservice architectures work really well with this, right? Because you've got sort of a, a clean line where some AI or ML system can just send a request to some endpoint. Mm -hmm. um, so there are definitely you know, red flags and green flags there for how much do you wanna build in internally and how much can you outsource? You guys, uh, Sharon, you hit on it a little bit earlier, and Kevin, you just kind of poked on it again. What about concerns around giving up intellectual property? You know, where it's it's, I might be using a pre predefined, prescribed machine learning uh, model itself. You know, whether it's a neural network or some, I don't know all the details around some of these things, um, yep. but depending on how I'm building this or what enabling technology I'm using, is there a concern around losing or retaining machine uh, uh, intellectual property, Sharon? Um, well, I think it depends how you set up um, your, your models and your partnership with a particular vendor, if you're gonna use a vendor versus build, mm -hmm. it, build it all in house. Um, I think I think it is a consideration. I don't think it's like a you, you you that you will lose you know IP, but I think it's a consideration that you really have to think about at the outset. Mm -hmm. And and you know if you wanted to say switch platforms, switch vendors, you know what does that path look like? And understanding that ahead of time, uh, I think is really critical. Mm. Mm. So if yeah. I've got this. Yeah, go ahead, Kevin. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, th there are lawyers that specialize in exactly this, right? So, I mean, <laughs> definitely, we are, we are not offering legal advice. Yeah. Um, but, Machine uh, learning lawyers? <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. They're whole firms that that is their specialty, right? They, uh, um, they specialize in how to um, protect your IP around algorithms and, and data. Mm. Um, but the, so I'll, I'll, having worked with some of them, I'll try to uh, give a non-experts summarization. Um, often it's very hard to patent or protect the core algorithm because you're using essentially research products from five years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Some very smart people in some universities have come up with a core optimization or learning algorithm uh, and, and that's public domain. Um, but uh, again, it, when we, we've talked a lot here about you know the business value, the business process, the business purpose of, of all that, all of that then now falls under traditional, you know, IP protection. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really where you're focusing is how do you use this system? How do you integrate this system? Uh, and then there are a handful of companies that are, you know, willing to invest millions of dollars into ML research that get to that threshold of blurring that line and maybe doing some real true algorithm development that can be protected. Um, but for most companies looking to just enter in the space, that's, that's not going to be a, a, a realistic goal yeah um sounds like we're heading towards uh additional focus from a re regulatory perspective as well um, mm -hmm. um as machine learning continues to be adopted um, i'm wondering with these lawyers if they're just going to help us with their ip or help us stay out of jail <laughs> 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 yeah. um so leveraging um, algorithms that have been built as a result of academia or some kind of research uh, body, thought body, you know, uh, body of knowledge and whatnot. Um, 
as these algorithms get codified and they get purposed, you know, like there's targeted business problems that different kinds of models can solve. That sounds like it's starting to open the door towards the citizen data scientist. Uh, Sharon, you kind of poked on that a little bit before. Is there a concern around this, you know, democratizing machine learning, uh, Anthony? Um, you know, I think I think there's um, there's uh, two sides to that. I think one side it, it gives a lot of uh, subject matter experts the ability to start getting into the data a little bit more um, at depth. You know, looking at the data from a model perspective and understanding what the potential is with the data. A lot of times, these SMEs, um, you know, they, they already have kind of insights of what the, the data looks like, uh, mm -hmm. the trends, and uh, you know, they they already have uh, an initial idea. Uh, a lot of times, I think these tools give them the ability to see. How can we leverage this uh, insight that they already have and put it into a model? Uh, so I think that's beneficial. On the other side, though, a lot of times these subject matter experts don't really understand the uh, model from a data science perspective of what the results actually mean, um, how to evaluate the results, or how to maintain um, you know, these models uh, in an environment for a long term. So that's mm -hmm. where the data scientist kind of comes in and helps manage that process and make sure that, that the outcome of what they're looking to have is truly what it is and uh, to help with that, that uh, the kind of the end point or the end process there. Is there some prescribed methods around uh, doing the, the, these kinds of reviews, uh, bringing a subject matter expert that understands the business and a data scientist that understands the black box or the opaque blocks? Uh, Sharon, are there, have you subscribed to certain kinds of methods to do this check and balance? I want to enable this analytics at scale, but I have to be careful, I'm thinking. Mm. Yeah, so how we enable it, you know, we're, we're working on a um, machine learning problem right now in our, you know, predictive maintenance space that I mentioned. And for myself, having a, a product management background, you know, we really run this like a product management um, uh, approach, right? So mm -hmm. we follow, you know, Agile, we have the standups, we have, you know, weekly kind of sprint reviews um, mm -hmm. in a sense. They're kind of like model outcome, um, looking at accuracy, looking at recall, looking at precision um, of the model and development, deciding whether or not we need to build, you know, build a new version of the model. Um, and, and the way we kind of bridge that together is that we have the subject matter experts and the data scientists um, in all these meetings together. Right, mm -hmm. where we, we just, we combine, we combine the teams. So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it's hard because we're speaking very different languages, but um, I think it's really important to start bridging that knowledge, right? So the data scientists start understanding the business and the business starts understanding the data science machine learning language. Like, what do we mean mm -hmm. by precision? What do we mean by recall, right? And they, when they start to understand that, the business side, mm -hmm. then light bulbs go off and they go, oh, well, what if we were to bring this other piece of data in? How would that feature, you know, help drive the accuracy of the model? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and that's how we approach it. I'm sure there's lots of other ways of, of doing it, but that that's how we do it internally right now. Hey, Kevin, as you're out with your clients, I love that, Sharon, by the way, um, that they, they're truly forming an agile team that has the business expertise in there along with the technical expertise. Um, Kevin, you know, you, you do a lot of work with varying organizations. What have you seen yeah. be most effective? Yeah, and I think Sharon hit a lot of it right on the nose there. Um, and I, I love that sort of matrix team approach that you have SMEs working day to day, you know, doing standups with the data scientists as well. Mm -hmm. um, one way I sort of frame, often frame this is um, that the SMEs have these complex models already running in their heads, right? They, they're understanding a whole bunch of different data sources and making very complex decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. And the data science team's job is to get the model out of the head and into an automated system. Mm. Um, and that helps sort of frame a lot of the discussions we have about, you know, why are you making this decision or why are you looking at the data in this way? Uh, and usually there's a good reason. Um, mm. And, uh, the that can be a little hard to fit into a traditional sort of agile process. Um, it, the 
it's a it's a much more exploratory research oriented approach especially mm -hmm. at, the, at the beginning right it's hard to say oh in exactly two weeks i will have exactly this much value out of this uh, interaction between the, the the subject matter expert and my data scientist mm. um and so it's for for a lot of the companies I've I've worked with, the, the key has been knowing when to transition between those two states, knowing when to say, all right, we're we're sort of researching, you know, what a data scientist would call exploratory data analysis. Um, okay, we found something here. Uh, now let's go and operationalize it, right? Let's not not just go explore more. Let's not just go um, dig in and make our model perfect. How do we, you know, use an agile process from that point on to really start having an impact upon the business. And so then that kind of helps build these feedback loops, right? That, mm -hmm. That's what allows us to be iterative in our whole process. Um, that's interesting, you know, because we're, we're pushing pretty hard. Sorry, Anthony. We're pushing pretty hard on helping companies understand, helping our customers understand that uh, taking a lean agile approach is the right way to go for the analytics stream, value stream. But um, does data science fit into that mindset? You know, where I'm building little analytic products and I'm doing it quickly and iteratively. Does it work in data science, Anthony? Um, yeah, so I, I was gonna, yeah, uh, kind of go off of what Kevin was talking about here. Um, you know, in our in our team, we've, we've kind of uh, been on both sides. We've done, uh, we continue to do agile, but sometimes uh, where well, we initially started off uh, where we're doing sprints, just like the engineers were doing. And we found that it was, pretty difficult to, you know, keep, um, you know, the work into those uh, two to three week sprints. So we ended up going over to a Kanban type of process. Uh, what you find is when you're doing data science, um, let's say you get a data set that has, you know, 50 columns on there. Um, as you're looking through those, you, you, you start analyzing this data and you realize, okay, there's correlations between these, these features. How are you going to handle this? And, and it becomes more of a, a research uh, problem in a sense. And it's not like a definite a definitive timeline of like, okay, I'm going to be done in this amount of time. And sometimes that spills over. So mm. for us, we ended up using more of the Kanban uh, type of process. Um, you know, if you have a model that's already in place and you're looking to do specific things, that becomes more engineering-like and you can work on things. Uh, you know, you can set up a timeline to do that type of work. But when you're kind of exploring the data and understanding how, you know, what the best way is to work with this data, um, sometimes you need a little bit more flexibility than just, a, you know, a regular sprint. Do we have, do, are we running the risk of getting caught in exploration cycle? You know, how do, how do we break out of that? Yeah, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll jump in. But um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, one thing I really like to do is even if you're in a research mode, still having artifacts and deadlines uh, involved. Um, it can be as simple as sort of a, you know, a PowerPoint presentation on a couple of graphs of the stuff that was interesting in your data, right? Mm -hmm. um, or uh, interactive Jupyter notebook um, with some code embedded in it, right? Um, and uh, just having, you know, e even if it isn't the final answer, but we say, you know, it's a concrete thing, an artifact that you guys can discuss and make a decision, right? Is it worth mm -hmm. exploring more here? Or uh, do we have enough that we can go and start to, uh, you know, really roll it out and go and, and take an engineering mindset on? Um, just even those little small check-ins can help um, uh, the team be more focused and more mm -hmm. uh, uh, active in, in asking themselves that question. Uh, and then also the, the stuff that Sharon was alluding to earlier of having uh, a subject matter expert integrated into the team, like, you'll know they they'll raise their hand and be like, yes, I want that now. Right. Uh -huh. you know, they, uh, that, 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 that can help a lot with that uh, decision. Sharon, it looked like the question resonated with you. Do you have some additional thoughts? Um, yeah. I mean, we pretty much follow exactly what Kevin mentioned. Um, it's, we may not have like an a execute, a usable feature or product to go and demo, but what we do have is, you know, just a, a checkpoint of like, even if it's just graphs and trends, this is what the model's showing, or this is what it's predicted thus far. Then we bring in the subject matter experts and say, mm -hmm. you know, just give a reality check on it. So as we're marching down that, you know, the machine learning um, tasks, you know, mm -hmm. all the way from, you know, feature identification, you know, it, 
EDA, you know, all the way through, that we're marching in lockstep with the objectives, right? And we're not diverging. So having those check-ins, I think, yeah, even if they're, you know, but sometimes we just have PowerPoint slides or we have, we look at kind of a percent accuracy as we're kind of testing the model. Um, I think that just kind of gets everybody at the table around, you know, around the current status of what that, you know, what that, um, 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 hypothesis test and exploratory analysis that we're doing, right? So everybody can provide the input. And so we just make sure, I think of it like this big glowing ball that we're kind of moving down, you know, this road all together. And we just make sure that it's it's kind of going down this the, the right path. And, the orb. The orb, yeah. <laughs> this magic black orb, the black box orb. Um, yeah, and it's just those, I think it's those check-ins and, and uh, that's just so critical along the way. Gosh, guys, how are you bringing the business along? How are you educating your business that this is what this stuff is before uh, we can even start to tell them it's important that we get, get on this bandwagon? It's a lot of complexity. Give us some techniques or tips on how we bring our business along. It feels a little bit daunting. Anyone? Yeah, I could give it a shot. I mean, we've, so we've been down, like, I think, again, it's a journey, right? It's starting off with the analytics and the data and kind of having people use that. And then uh, there's like a, just a level of curiosity. I mean, machine learning AI, like you can't be working in 2021 and not have heard of AI and ML, mm -hmm. right? And right. so um, I think it's, you know, for, for us, there's, there's just this understanding that this is where we, we need to go to. Um, and so when we start looking at transformational projects and technology and how can we, how can, in the transformations, how can we transform our business? We're always asking like, can machine learning, you know, help us get there? And again, it's a hypothesis test, right? But I think at least kind of having that, that kind of an understanding of how machine learning is different from just a, you know, a set of analytics that's going to cross a threshold, you know, mm -hmm. determining whether or not, you know, I'm going to alarm after crossing a, a threshold. And it's, it's a lot more than that. And I think for us, part of it has been our, our, the business has been using the analytics and consuming the analytics and they're starting to see the limitations, right? Mm -hmm. They're starting to see the limitations of how, like we're, we've accelerated so much in our, in our operations, but now we've kind of hit a little bit of a plateau. And can machine learning move it forward? You know, mm -hmm. on the other side of it, which is something that I've been really thinking about and kind of I've started to kind of put this out there in the business is those teams, those subject matter teams who are part of these projects, um, how can we get some sort of training for them with, which isn't too technically overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's actually a gap, you know, in our industry. So I've, I've kind of looked at the landscape and I look at some of the trainings that's out there. You look at the, you know, the um, like Coursera and what's out and, all, and some of them go so deep technically. And I'm like, this is just, doesn't fit or, you know, what they need to understand, but they still need to, I, I call it like a machine learning strategist. Like you, you've got to understand mm. if you're going to go down this path, you've got to understand that. And so I kind of started to build kind of my own set of training um, resources for the business to try awesome. and live in between the two. Yeah, because if I was a business owner, I, I get it. You know, I have to get on board because I'm going to be left behind. All the research firms are telling me that. So I, I must do it because my peers are doing it. But I, I don't know what it is. What, I'm, what am I getting into? How do we help? Our customers are, you know, being, you know, the, the people in, in the business units we support or as a consultant customers, how do we educate them on what they're about to step up to? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think um, it, it is often a little bit more of a daunting process than people want it to be, a little bit more of a holistic process than people want it to be. Um, I think everyone is, understands and has sort of accepted the the potential of AI and ML. Uh, and so it's really just about the nitty gritty 
details of actually getting it really running inside your business. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one thing I think that uh, helps there is to really focus on the errors and the mistakes that these systems make. Um, it, there's sort of two things that'll sort of be highlighted when you do that. Um, sometimes it can be a little uncomfortable, right? No group likes to focus on their failures. Um, but if, if you have a, a good relationship with your leadership team, it's, it's certainly possible. Uh, and you'll start to see that both, it'll highlight what is the consequence of a mistake, right? What other sort of business processes or systems we need in place to manage and mitigate the downsides of those mistakes, mm-hmm. um, which really gets at how the machine learning group is integrated into the rest of the company. Um, and then also, you know, why is it making this mistake? What data does it need to make a better decision? Um, and where is that data inside our organization? What are the barriers in getting that data from point A to point B, right? Um, or maybe, you know, you as a business aren't even collecting that data at all. Um, and that becomes a whole new sort of, uh, uh, you know, project for the company to go and mm-hmm. find the right data source to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be a new sensor, you know, you might use third party um, data brokerage services or uh, just better instrumentation and measurement inside your company. Um, so I think once people start opening that door just a little bit, um, uh, leadership has a much easier time in understanding both, you know, that we're not wizards and that we don't wave a magic wand and just have money and algorithms come out the other Mm -hmm. side, uh, as well as, you know, really what it's going to look like to fully integrate machine learning with some business unit or business process. Cool. I was going to jump in and uh, give you um, a perspective from, from, uh, you know, from Panasonic, Um, you know, the, the ones that are really driving a lot of this data science stuff are the product owners and they don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have the understanding of, data science per se, but they know what they're looking to build. Um, and so we're building a Cirrus platform that integrates uh, various um, uh, items like curve speed warning or uh, other items that were, are important to roadway operators. And so from that, what the way it's driven is understanding when the research the researchers do uh, you know, their research, they reach out to roadway operators, they understand what's, what, what's the, the business critical needs that they have. And then that gets pushed back to the product owners. And then the product owners, you know, will come to the data science team and ask us, well, how can we use this data to identify these particular items that we're looking for? So it's kind of an iterative process here of these various teams working together uh, collaboratively to identify uh, what we need to develop and then how can data science help us get there? So it's not a matter of, uh, you know, the other teams necessarily knowing um, that data science can actually do it or is able to do it, but it's first coming up with what are we looking to develop um, and then working backwards and then bringing that to the data science team. And from there, you know, we analyze the data, we, we do, um, you know, the exploratory analysis to understand what is the potential here, see if that's even possible before we start going down that path. I'm loving that. Very customer centric focused, you know, let's get out to the actual customers whose needs we're trying to solve. You guys keep bringing us right back to that. It's like, if we're not going after the business value, we shouldn't be doing this stuff. (laughs) All right. So um, where are we going to be in the next five to 10 years? What's this this space going to look like? Sharon, I'll start with you. What do you think? I think we're not going to recognize it. Um, (laughs) The rate of... um, just, you know, going from, I'll call it, you know, basic machine learning to deep learning, um, the, the rate of acceleration of the development of these models and the, the understanding of how all that works um, has accelerated so much in the last three to four years. I, I mean, it's just, it's mind blowing, right? And you know, we're, we're starting to walk down a, a, a deep learning project with reinforcement learning. And um, if, I think three years ago, it, we, 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 we couldn't even have really started it without um, 
a raft of data scientists, PhD data scientists. And now, you know, there's, it, there's, there's so many of these models out there. And so therefore, you know, every, the, the industry's learning and understanding has, has grown so quickly that I, I think AutoML is, is going to really transform um, industries and it's gonna transform the machine learning industry. Like AutoML is gonna transform its own industry in just mm -hmm. the way that it, it can, you know, automate um, the development of these models. Mm. So I, I, mean, I hate to punt on it, but I, I, I just don't know. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what the next five to 10 years is going to look like. I just think, I, and I think that the takeaway for, if I could share anything is that just start with something now, right? Start mm -hmm. building that foundation within your organization today so that you can be carried along in this journey. Right. Because I think I, I think it is it's going to be like a tidal wave. And if you're not starting to build that core foundation today, you're going to find yourself in five years just looking back behind you and go, whoa, you know, what just happened to our industry? Mm -hmm. I love that. Kevin, what is uh, your crystal? Uh, yeah. Tell us. I, 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 I also I think that um, one of the strengths of data science is that you are comfortable with uncertainty. Right, so I love that Sharon is willing to say, yeah, I, you know, we don't really know. I think there are really game-changing potential algorithm changes coming down the pipeline. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there. Uh, I think there is one thing that we can say, though, at least with certainty, which is that you'll have more senior leaders at companies that have had experience with ML and and you know more exposure, whether they came out of a data science group but now they're a VP. Um, or whether they just are, have you know, run and interacted with multiple of these ML projects in the past. Uh, and so that sort of deepening of the knowledge of a lot of these best practices, a lot of these ways of framing the problems and benefits of ML um, that we've been talking about today, uh, hopefully will become more sort of ubiquitous and spread out um, uh, across organizations that are, that are succeeding. Mm. I'm wondering, is that a generational thing? Mike, I was gonna say, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. if you want to handle that too. I was partially, I mean, like partially it's just a history of when you came into the industry and when you got your feet wet and part of it's just experience, right? Like even uh, regardless of what generation you're part of, you can always learn new things and, and start new projects at your business. So mm -hmm. go ahead, Anthony. Thanks, Kevin. Um, you know, one thing I was going to say is if you look back, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, there was no discipline for data science. Uh, you know, you had your your programs in universities, you know, marketing, finance, accounting, so forth. Now, when you look at universities, they're offering data science degrees now. So um, if we continue, if we look at that from that perspective, from an educational perspective, I, I agree with Kevin, you know, we're going to see people going more in direction of data science. You're going to have more executives and leadership um, in that area of data science because it's um, you know, it's, it's adding value to companies and companies now that they realize that there's value in this area, um, they're going to dedicate more resources to that. So I think the trend for data science is only going to increase into the future. Yeah. Uh, accelerated rate is my guess too, right? It's going to just, yeah. just yep. skyrocket. Hey, we got a question. Um, I'll throw this out. Anybody jump in? How do we monitor and manage the auto ML? to prevent the types of drifts and errors uh, already being articulated that we've already discussed. How do we monitor and manage auto ML to- Yeah, uh, I mean, so this is one of the um, check boxes uh, for the features lists for um, these auto ML platforms um, that some of them have, some of them don't have. Sometimes they're better, sometimes they're worse. Um, so there's definitely tooling and sort of uh, systems that you can put in place that will help with this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but at the end of the day, it still relies on someone paying attention to those dashboards, those alerts saying, hey, this is drifting. And then, mm -hmm. you know, making a decision on whether that's worth investigating more or whether that's something that's just incidental, right? Um, and so, uh, the, yeah, I mean, you really still need that human element of who's going to make the decision to have my, you know, whole data science team look into this drift problem for the next two mm -hmm. weeks. Um, so are we supposed to be 
as part of our design of, of any of these solutions, are we supposed to be intentionally building in monitoring? Yeah, I mean- And our again, company's like, doing that? No, well, I'll go back to my earlier quote. Uh, everyone wants to be data-driven and no one wants to let the data drive, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> the, they think, oh, we have a dashboard. Great, now we're data-driven. No, you actually have to look at it. You actually have to you know, <laughs> make a decision based upon that dashboard. Uh, I mean, it's a sad fact of, I think, probably everyone in data science uh, uh, career um, that you made a dashboard that you were really proud of, and then you go and look at the usage stats uh, three months later and find that, like, you know, it's been looked at once. Um, so I, I think that uh, that uncomfortable process, uh, you know, has to be sort of more holistic to the company of mm -hmm. do they care about the data in the first place? How about sharing when you guys are building your your models? Um, how how intentional is the ongoing monitoring and efficacy uh, tracking? Yeah, um, so I I think it's really important to emphasize that a model is never done, right? You don't build a model and then put it into production and move on to the next product, right? Because a model, so your machine learning model should be continuously learning. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways it learns, like for example, in our predictive maintenance is it learns from a feedback loop where the user is saying, is telling the model, yes or no, you've, you know, you've, I'm validating whether or not there is an issue with this particular asset. And so then that validation goes back into the model to learn and hopefully its predictions get better. But if that human, right, if you have an, a new, um, say, you know, a person that's new in the field of identifying whether or not there really is an issue and they're feeding it in bad information, that model is not gonna know that that information is bad. Right, so mm -hmm. it's really important. I think, yeah, just you, you've got to monitor it. You've got to continually evaluate it. Um, it it's just, it's, it, it's never done. You can't just put it in production and walk away and move to the next one. You, it's continuous care um, okay. in those models. Yeah, uh, interesting. Got another question. We've got a few more minutes. I, this might be directed to you, Sharon. Um, which certifications would you consider for gaining data-driven petroleum engineering or any societies to get some kind of accreditation from? Wow. I uh -huh. have to, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, yeah. Anybody? Yeah. It's I mean, kind of specific it, to an industry. That's exactly. I, yeah. I can't really answer it specific to petroleum, but um, yeah. Uh, more generally on sort of data science certifications, I can, I can speak a little bit. Um, some of them are, are fine and okay. Um, it's a good, you know, first entry point sometimes to get people comfortable. Uh, one of the, the problems is that there's kind of two approaches, right? You either teach someone how to drive or teach someone how an engine works, right? To understand mm -hmm. what a car is. Um, and um, the, uh, the real like heavy stats stuff, right? Really takes, you know, a couple of years to get uh, really comfortable with and it, it mm -hmm. isn't really well suited to, you know, a three day certification process. Um, and then on the sort of how to drive side of things, um, as we've all talked about, everything's changing so fast um, that, you know, if you got a certification two years ago, uh, you, you really have to stay active in the field mm -hmm. and learning new tools on your own as problems arise to stay current. Um, there's not really any great, uh, you know, you can't just go out for a CE credit every year and get all of the updates about uh, what's happened in data science. It's really, you know, on yourself. Um, yeah. But that, that being said, like, if you just want to get started and have a little bit of comfort and interest in it, um, a lot of the certification uh, programs are good for that. Great. Awesome. Anthony, any thoughts from? Yeah. Um, you know, what I, what I found is, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, when they're looking to get into data science, the, the question is like, well, what, how do I begin? Where do I start? Uh, one of the things I propose is, is um, starting to learn Python. 
Um, and the reason I propose Python is because um, it gives you so many options to work with data. Um, it allows, it works with basically all the li libraries from scikit-learn from the data science side into, uh, into the neural networks, uh, PyTorch, TensorFlow and everything. So it gives you the, it, gives, it basically gives you the full gamut there. Um, but it also gives you the ability to work with the data uh, from a data engineering standpoint, uh, cleaning data, one hot encoding, uh, dropping duplicates, those types of things that you have to handle as you're working with data. So um, that's kind of where I always stand and say, you know, get started with learning a little bit of Python. That'll get mm -hmm. you embedded with the code because one thing, if you're going to work with data science and data, you have to be able to feel comfortable working with, um, you know, one of those, um, the technology as well as the code. Awesome. Sharon Allpress, Kevin Hill, Anthony Rodez, you guys are amazing. I have so many new brain wrinkles listening to you. You people are brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you, everyone that joined us today. Have a great day. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks.